continuing in our series, Defending Your Faith, and I want to bring a couple of items to your attention so that you might have some worthy reading on the subjects that are germane to the life and action of the church in these days in which we live. I had mentioned to you some time ago that there was a set of booklets that have been put out recently by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which is a group headed by Dr. James Boyce, for whom we have been praying regarding his liver cancer, and it appears as though he's going to go be with the Lord very shortly. And there are a number of these booklets that have been very, very instructive and helpful to me and I believe that they would be helpful to you as well. And I've pointed out a couple of them, and I'm even going to be reading from one of them later on in our message. But so far, and I don't know how many there are going to be total in this series, this may be all that they're set to produce, but there are about 12 of these little booklets that are all about 48 pages in length. They're very economical and they're very succinct in what they are attempting to communicate that are today's issues. In fact, in fact, that's the name of the series, Today's Issues. And there are a number of very, very provocative titles. Uh, for instance, uh, Mark Talbot, who's a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College, has written one called The Signs of True Conversion, talking about the matter of salvation. Alistair Begg has written a very, very good booklet here called Preaching for God's Glory. Rod Rosenblatt, who's a Lutheran uh, scholar and uh, professor, in California, Christ Alone, uh, Reforming Our Worship Music by Leonard Payton, very, very good, Pleasing God in Our Worship by Robert Godfrey, uh, To God Be the Glory by John Hanna, who spoke recently here at the Bible Church, uh, Why God's Word is All We Need, The Sufficiency of Scripture by Gene Edward Veith, uh, Philip Graham Riken, who's the son of Leland Riken, Is Jesus the Only Way, The Grace of Repentance by Sinclair Ferguson, Justified by Faith Alone by R.C. Sproul, and one from James Montgomery Boyce called What Makes a Church Evangelical. And I really commend each of these to you, and we have had, uh, I think, a number of these on sale uh, in the past. And if you want to know more information or if you want to look these over, I have them here, and you might be able to browse them as our service is over, and I think you'd profit greatly from them. And with regard to what we want to talk a little bit about tonight uh, in the matter of Roman Catholicism, uh, there's a very good little book by John Armstrong called The Catholic Mystery, which is a good little primer on Roman Catholicism. I think it's very, very good. At the end of each chapter, he even has a quiz in which you can take that not only takes you uh, and asks you to learn through what the chapter has just taught you, but it's also very good in terms of its information. And so I think it's going to be a very, very worthwhile volume. Uh, it used to be called A View of Rome, published by Moody Press, and now it's been expanded, and now it's published by Harvest House. The Catholic Mystery, Understanding the Beliefs and Practices of Modern Catholicism. And I think that's going to be a very worthy volume, and I commend it to you as well. We do want to continue our series in Roman Catholicism uh, in, excuse me, in defending our faith by talking about Roman Catholicism tonight. And you know, when you approach a subject like this, uh, there are so many ways in which you could pursue uh, the matter of 
the Roman Catholic Church. And I do want to take a couple of sessions with you as we move along in this series to define and to delineate the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and then to ask ourselves the question, is this what the Bible teaches? And this evening is no different. Even though I've covered uh, some of the messages in our previous parts in this series regarding some of the cults, I'm not necessarily saying that Roman Catholicism is a cult as we have defined some of these other groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the um, issue that surrounds the Seventh-day Adventists, whether or not that's a cult, uh, the, the Moonies, Sun, Young, Moon. Uh, some of those groups can clearly be defined as outside the pale of Christianity. But the Roman Catholic Church seems to be so elusive as we evaluate who they are and where they are theologically. And yet, we do want to talk about them and their background. Now, I debated whether or not I wanted to start by talking about all of the origins of the Roman Catholic Church and what they really teach. But I'm going to resist doing that tonight, and I think I'll be able to do that next time with you because there are a number of shocking things that the Roman Catholic Church believes. Now, how many of you have come from a Roman Catholic background? I'd like to see that. Good. There are a number of you that have come from a Roman Catholic background, and yet even sometimes those who hail from a background of Roman Catholicism don't really understand all that the church teaches. And we're going to go into that in some detail as we move along. Uh, for instance, what the church teaches about the Virgin Mary, uh, what the church teaches about penance, about purgatory, uh, about works, about uh, all of the things that are involved in the seven sacraments of the church, including baptism and its issue with justification. There are a number of things that I think will shock you as we move along uh, as defined by the Roman Catholic Church. But tonight, I want to take the one issue that we have addressed in some detail and that you've probably heard some about, but I want to introduce it because this is the fountainhead doctrine from which all other theology flows out from the Roman Catholic Church, and that is the issue of salvation. The issue of salvation. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a salvation that is unquestionably the kind of gospel that the Apostle Paul says is another gospel in Galatians chapter 1. It is another gospel. You say, well, what is the gospel that Roman Catholicism teaches? Well, I'm going to go through the background in a few moments about the church and where it began to veer from the biblical doctrine of salvation. But what I want to do is first set in your minds again what the Bible teaches regarding our justification and the salvation that we've been granted in Christ. And for us to do that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. This is absolutely crucial for every one of us to understand as it relates to Roman Catholic theology and their theology of salvation. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is endeavoring to prove the point that all of the world is guilty before God 
and are condemned as sinners. After a very lengthy explanation of the sinfulness of sin in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, all the way through verse 18, the Apostle Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because, and this is a very important statement, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now what Paul is trying to tell us here is that God has given us His law. And in His law, we have a standard of righteousness. And it should be very apparent to every single person, especially a person who has moved from their teen years, let's say, into their uh, older adulthood, uh, anywhere from their older uh, young 20s to their uh, golden age, as we might say, everyone is fully aware, even those uh, who are small children, through the instruction of their mother and father in the Word of God, understand so very clearly that God has given us His law and that man has violated that law because he stands condemned by his sin. Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. In other words, if you were to compare your life or my life as over against the standard of God's law, God's perfection, God's rules, God's demands, if that were the case, and if we were to compare our lives as over against the standard of the law of God, no flesh, no person, no human being would be justified in His sight. In fact, he says back in verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does, does good. There is not even one. What is the heart of man? What's he all about? Verse 13, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the plight of man. This is the condition in which all men find themselves. They're under the curse of God's law. In verse 21, Paul says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For, is, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And how did God display that? Whom God displayed publicly, that is Christ, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And why was that to be? This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, Paul says, of His righteousness at the present time 
so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is endeavoring to say here is that there is a law and those who did not have the law before the law was given, God previously passed over. But when the law came, it produced the knowledge of sin. And when it did, God was able to see everyone as sinning and therefore falling short of the glory of God. And that because God wanted to demonstrate the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that ultimately God would be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. In verse 27, Paul says then, where is boasting? Can anyone boast that they're above the law? Can anyone boast that they've kept the law fully and completely? Paul says it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain, this is a very important statement, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And there, beloved, you have a very clear and precise statement, maybe the most precise statement in all of God's Word regarding the relationship of a sinner to God. We have to understand that there is no merit, there is no amount of works, there is no amount of deserving anything from God if we were attempting to be justified from Him or toward Him by anything we do. He says very clearly, it is not of works, verse 27, no, it is by faith. And we maintain a man is justified by faith or through faith apart from works of the law. Now, Paul has told the Galatians the very same thing. And if you'll turn over to Galatians chapter 2, he says the very same thing. You say, and why would Paul say this to the Romans? Why would he say this to the Galatians? And the answer, of course, is very clear. Because the Romans and the Galatians were hit with those Judaizers, those who would say that you must do something, whether it's circumcision or obeying the law or doing something in your life by way of works or dedication or effort or penance or whatever it may be, in order to be right with God. And Paul is endeavoring to say there's no amount of that that you could ever do that would make you right with God. We would spend all eternity and never, by the works of our own life, become justified in God's sight because the law is producing what we know by experience and by the revelation of the Word of God about ourselves, and that is that we are sinners. We could never hope to be justified in God's sight by keeping the law. We can't do it. Verse 16 of Galatians 2, Paul says, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus." You see again, he says it's not by law, it's not by merit, it's not by effort, it's not by anything that we could do. We could never deserve being justified by God on the basis of anything that's inherent within us. It is through faith and faith in Christ. It's not even faith in our faith. It's faith in an object, and the object is Christ, and it's what Christ did on that cross. 
He says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He says the same thing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. You see, all of us are condemned. All of us are under a curse. Why? Because we've violated the law of God. The standard is so high that we could never attain it. And therefore, we're under a curse. And therefore, we're fulfilling the very prophecy, the very statement that says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Paul says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's so manifestly evident. It's so obvious. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. You see the transfer there? The only way that we could ever be right before God is to have our life replaced, transferred, given a a new addition by someone else. And that someone else is the perfect Christ who died on the cross as a transferal. His righteousness for my sin. His holiness for my unholiness. His justice for my non-justice. He says in verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is, Abraham's faith, and he is the father of our faith, and what God did in covenantal blessing of Abraham, it might come to us. The promise that God made that He would create a nation of faithful people so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, whether we're talking about Romans 3 or we're talking about Galatians 2 or 3, the Bible explicitly teaches that there is no amount of works that we could ever do from the smallest amount of work to the greatest amount of work that we ever assumed we could do. It is all rubbish in God's sight because it's an attempt to be right with Him through illegitimate means. The only means that God accepts is the only means that He has designed. And the only means He has designed is through the cross of Christ because He's the perfect One. He's the cursed One who was hanging on that tree and God accepted Him, His life and His death. And now the only way for us to be justified in God's sight is for that that relationship between Christ and God and what Christ did for God to be applied to our account. That's the only way. Now you say, well, why could anybody see anything differently than these things that you've been saying from the Word of God? Well, because we have an adversary. And his name is Satan, the devil. And what he tries to do is he tries to masquerade someone who is doing a work as though if they were able to do that work to a sufficient degree that God would accept him. Now, Satan knows that there's no way 
to completely overturn the grace of God by saying that it's all of grace, it's grace alone, plus or minus no works of any kind. Satan knows that there's no way that the church could be hoodwinked into thinking that it's, it's no grace at all and it's all works. So what does he do? Well, he says, if I can't overturn the tables to such a degree as that, I'll attempt to make people think that it's partly God's grace and partly the work of man. You see, way, way back in the 300s and the 400s, in the centuries we know that are numbered in that way, there was a man by the name of Augustine. And Augustine had a debate with another man by the name of Pelagius. And I won't go into all of the detail, but this debate became a raging inferno because Augustine was grappling with a teaching that was very much satanic and it came from Pelagius and his followers and they were in fact saying a number of things that were in fact an attempt to overturn completely the grace of God. In other words, Pelagius taught that there was no original sin that came to us from Adam. Yes, he sinned, but that sin was not passed down to us, and therefore we could, on our own, in and of ourselves, respond to God on our own. We did not need, per se, the grace of God to be operative to our account so that we would be right with God. We could respond to God because we had a freedom in our will to respond to God in the way that we chose. Well, Augustine knew that that was a hideous, hideous doctrine. And so he responded against that. And because, of course, Augustine was a part of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, and because that was the only church there was, he spoke out vigorously against such teaching. And the Roman Catholic Church had a problem. The problem that they had was that they agreed more with Augustine than they did Pelagius, and Pelagius was branded a heretic, but they didn't fully agree with what Augustine was saying. They thought that he had over-responded to Pelagius. And so what the Roman Catholic Church did was they tried to hit a middle ground between Augustine and Pelagius. And so even up to our own day, from that time to this, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that in order for a person to be justified by God, to be declared righteous in God's sight, there must be an admixture of grace and works. And it goes back to exactly what I said a moment ago. It's a satanic lie that says if I can't have grace completely overturned as over against someone having nothing but works in their attempt to be right with God, I'll try to see if we can add a little bit of works to grace so that people can assume that it's some part of what they do and it's some part of what God does so that a man could be justified in God's sight. And from that day till now, that is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It is not fair to them to say that they are a Pelagian in their theology. It's not fair. They do not believe that in order to be justified by God, 
it is by yourself and your works alone that you are saved. But it is most fair to say that the Roman Catholic Church believes in an admixture of grace and works. And therefore, what Paul says in Romans 3 and in Galatians 2 and 3, in effect, has been overturned by the Roman Church. Now, we know, of course, that what happened was in the 1500s, well removed from the time of Augustine, came a man named Martin Luther. And then after him, a man named John Calvin. And they had their debaters as well. The man who debated Martin Luther was Desiderius Erasmus. And the man who debated John Calvin, among others, was Jacopo Sadoletto. And they were Roman Catholics. And they reacted again violently like Pelagius did to Augustine against the teaching that it is by faith alone. And sometimes they reacted because they assumed that if you said that it is by grace alone that a person is saved, justified in God's sight, then what people would do is they would bank on that doctrine and then they would go out and live unholy lives. They were very concerned about the moral laxity of the day. I mean, these theologians, these uh, ministers, as it were, in the church, were very concerned about righteous living. And what they wanted people to do was live to the glory of God. And so they reacted against what appeared to them to be a group of so-called reformers who wanted to change the church from within in a way that they believed ultimately would produce loose living, unholy living. For they thought that if you were able to somehow take the grace of God and move it to a level that had no connection with works of any kind, you were ultimately going to produce a group of carnal people who were not going to live to the glory of God. And so they were against it. Now it's a little bit more complicated than that, but ultimately that was one of the reasons why they rejected the Reformers' doctrine. As you know, the Reformation came up with a series of teachings in which we sang about tonight. A sola fide, by faith alone, or through faith alone. The instrument of being right with God is, is our faith in Christ alone, through no works of any kind. It is sola gratia. It is through the grace of God alone. Only God can give us His grace. It is totally apart from our own merit. It is totally apart from our own initiative. We must have the grace of God in our lives. Solo Christo. It is by Christ alone. It is not by anything else. It is Christ and His work on the cross. It is soli Deo Gloria. It is for ultimately the glory of God alone. And that all from sola scriptura. All from the Scripture alone. That's our guide. That's our standard. It's not some a church representative. It's not a pope. It's not someone who stands as though they are the great potentate of the world. It's only by God and God alone. And ultimately, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, reacted against that. And in fact, when the Reformation came and when the principles of the Reformation were declared and an all-out war was then on the surface and ever so growing, 
the Roman Catholic Church responded. And when they responded, they responded with an amazing amount of really, really serious, serious error for which they committed themselves for all time and eternity. You say, how so? Well, they responded to the Reformers at a place called the Council of Trent. It was sort of a a doctrinal enclave of a number of Roman Catholic teachers and officials, and they responded to these Reformers in an official capacity on behalf of the church itself with the Pope's full blessing. You want to know what they said? Here were a couple of canons or rules or principles that they used to respond to these reformers. And I want you to listen very, very carefully. This is the Council of Trent. This is the official response of the church. Here's what they said. Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let him be cursed for all time. That's what the word anathema means. You remember in 1 Corinthians 16, when the Apostle Paul said the same thing, he said, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be what? Anathema. Let him be cursed. Let him be damned. Here's the Roman church saying, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. Canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and charity which is poured forth in their hearts, You see where they're going with this? If anybody says that our justification is by imputation, something outside of me that's not infused into me, but declared about me as over against what God does in me by His grace, let Him be anathema. And there became the classic debate that happens even now in our churches and in the Roman church. It is the classic difference between imputation and infusion. I know that those are big words, and for some of you who are not familiar with that, it is actually, even though they are big words with a very definite definition to them, it is actually a matter of life and death spiritually. In fact, Martin Luther himself said that on this doctrine stands or falls the entire church. You say, what is imputation? That is God taking what Christ did on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, His sinlessness for my sinfulness, and He, on the basis of Christ completely fulfilling the works of the law and by His death on the cross as an atonement for sin, took Christ and His atonement and put it toward my account with what theologians call, Reformation theologians call, and imputed righteousness. In other words, God took something outside of me. Something that I could never conjure up on my own. Something that Christ did completely apart from any works that I could ever do in order to be right with God. It had to be outside of me. In fact, they called it an alien righteousness. It had to be something that was alien to me, foreign to me. 
And it had to be imputed to my account. And Rome rejects this in Canon 11. They say, if anyone says that, imputation, even using that very word, instead of infusion, that is God giving me grace and putting it into my heart so that ultimately I can, with that grace, and it must be with that grace, but my own works as well, And if that is the way I'm justified by God, then so be it. If anyone says anything differently than that, let him be cursed. Let him be damned. Canon 12. If anyone says that justifying grace is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone... In other words, confidence alone in the mercy of Christ and the mercy of God through Christ. If someone says that that's all it is that justifies us, let him be anathema. And they just point by point went through these Reformation doctrines again and again and again and said the official response of the church and this Council of Trent took several years to convene. They studied these things and they came to the conclusion that the reformers were dead wrong, that they had departed from the faith, and they declared them heretics. And to this day, beloved, to this very day, the Roman Catholic Church continues to call us separated brethren, those who have departed from the holy Catholic Church, those who are still under the curse of God, those who are still under the very curse that is spoken of in the Council of Trent. Now you say, but wait a minute. There have been new discussions. What about the ECT document, which stands for Evangelicals and Catholics Together, released in 1994, where several representatives on both sides, Roman Catholic and Evangelicals, have come together. And also the gift of salvation, a further clarifying uh, document that came out in 1997. Surely those things now have brought us up to speed with what not only the debate has been all about, but also some level of coming together, some convergence of ideas for which maybe the Reformation is now passe. Don't believe it. Don't believe it for one moment. You say, yes, but doesn't the document, the gift of salvation, say that we, we the signers of this document, now affirm sola fide? Yes, it says that. But just because a document says that there is now an affirmation of sola fide doesn't mean that that, in fact, is the case. Because if you read the document very, very carefully, what you find is that the Roman Catholic signatories on that particular doctrine a document, have a very, very different view of what sola fide actually means. It is not, I repeat, it is not the sola fide of the reformational truth that the church has lived by, the Protestant church, for all of these years. It does not mean the same thing. In fact, you can find contradictions in the gift of salvation itself with those who would say, as Roman Catholics, we affirm sola fide, but there are other statements which clearly mitigate against imputation and still talk about infusion. I remember a couple of years ago now, I believe it was 1997, just after the gift of salvation came out, I went to an annual meeting of a couple of thousand theologians in the Protestant camp 
called the Evangelical Theological Society, and it happened to be in Orlando, Florida. Dr. Zimmick and I were there together, as well as a number of other people. And there was, for the first time that I ever heard of, a panel in which a number of Protestants were going to be talking with a Roman Catholic scholar. Remember that, Dr. Z? And I was in rapt attention listening to what I might be able to hear from this Roman Catholic scholar about whether or not he, in fact, as one of the signatories of those two documents, were really becoming more Protestant than Roman Catholic in their theology. And it was one of the most frustrating, agonizing evenings I've ever experienced. Because in vain, not only were the men on the panel, which included uh, venerable men like Robert Godfrey, who's the president of Westminster Theological Seminary, and some others who were so very, very keen on these ideas for which I thank God, continued to ask this question, but do you believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness as alone the justification of sinners? And he kept saying, I believe in sola gratia. And that's not the answer to that question. All Roman Catholics believe that you must have the grace of God as operative in your life in order for you to respond to God Himself. Every Roman Catholic believes that. That's nothing new. They've said that for all their life long. The question is, do you say along with sola gratia and along with sola fide, not just the Latin phrase, but do you believe that Christ's righteousness alone is imputed to the sinner's account so that apart from Him, in an alien righteousness way, He is declared right or just before God? Do you believe that? And you know as well as I do that Roman Catholic scholars know exactly what that means. They have their seminaries just like we do. They go through these debates just like we do. They're tested on these things just like we are. And the answer to that question every single time was, I believe that a man cannot respond to God unless God gives him his grace. Wrong answer. Do you believe in infusion or imputation? And all the night long, no answer was forthcoming. And in my judgment... The answer to the question is that Rome has not changed, and I would even go farther, Rome will never change. You say, how can you be so bold as to say that? Because Rome has another doctrine, and it is this, that the church will never, that is the Roman Catholic Church, never reform itself. It is always and forever a teaching of the Council of Trent going all the way back from that and all the way from that to our own present day, the church will never be reformed. That's why in the early times of the Reformation, they had a slogan that said this, the church is reformed and always reforming. What do you mean by that? That means that the church is always discovering, always finding, always studying, always proclaiming. And if it means at some point that there's a greater level of understanding and teaching and articulation of the truth, then the church bows to the Word of God. Rome says no. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church puts itself up above Scripture as the sole interpreter of Scripture. And the Pope, of course, being the vicar of Christ, the one who ultimately is even the interpreter of Christ's rule and reign in the church. That's what Roman Catholics believe. 
Now you say, how do you respond to Rome? Well, now there are some approaches and some methods for which some people do attempt to speak to and with Rome and to work with Rome. For instance, J.I. Packer is one of those. And J.I. Packer, who's been a lifelong Protestant and a solid one at that, has said, it is my method that because of the evil in our world and because of our need to speak against those evils as a unified church, wherever I can, I will band together with anyone, including Rome, as co-belligerents against the evils of our day. Those evils could be anything from secularism, secular humanism, paganism, idolatry, abortion, euthanasia, physicians-assisted suicide, whatever that may be. And so as a method, I band together with Rome and others who are proclaiming Christ so that we can be co-belligerents with them against all others who stand against Christ. But he hastens to add, I will at the same time continue to lobby Rome to change its theology about how a man is right with God. Well, I'm no leader over Jim Packer. And I certainly am his junior in most ways. But I think that's a failed system. Because how can you, in the methodology of being a co-belligerent, with a group of people who says that salvation is one way and you say salvation is totally opposite of that. You say, well, how does that work out in practicality? Well, I could not work with a group of Roman Catholics because you have to understand, even in a co-belligerent sense, a co-belligerence against something like abortion or euthanasia, I am working alongside a Roman Catholic who is working for the very thing that I'm working for, but he's working toward his salvation and I've already gained it. He is actually working in that belligerence against the world's evils so that ultimately in that work, God will say to him, because of that work, you are justified in my sight because of this and my grace. See, we have to understand what Rome is doing. Rome is all around the world saying that if you will work for the church, if you will do good works, that will play a part in your ultimate justification before God. And so everything that Rome does is for that very purpose. How can I work with someone like that when the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1, very, very frightening words, I am amazed, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's what Rome is doing. They're distorting the gospel of Christ. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, and here's the very language that Rome borrows, who he is to be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. And as though Paul himself is incredulous as to what the Galatians have done in slipping into this, he says, as, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be damned. 
And then as though the Apostle Paul were answering the question that maybe some of them were asking, or maybe no one at that time were asking, but maybe some are asking now, Paul, if you're so strong with this, and if you're saying that if people preach a different gospel other than the one that you've received and preached, Paul, you're not currying favor with any man. You're standing against all men. Do you really understand what you're saying? Is that what you want to do? Verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? In other words, look, if I were doing this for the sake of pleasing men, I certainly wouldn't be saying what I just said. Because that's not something that people want to hear. If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So what would Paul say if he were here today? He'd say the Roman Gospel or any other Gospel that dilutes the pure, unadulterated grace of God as found in Jesus Christ is anathema. And practically speaking, what we must do to every Roman Catholic, every Roman Catholic, is to continue to challenge them to affirm that it is grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's why those alones are so very important. So very important. You say, well, are there some who are in the Roman church who are true Christians? Yes, undoubtedly. But if they are still in the Roman church, They are bad Christians. Because if they are true Christians, they ought to leave Rome. You ought to encourage each and every one of them that you might know who is there. Look, if you say that you believe in the grace of God alone, you're standing now against your church. How can you in good conscience do that? If, if you're a good Christian, then you better be a bad Catholic. In fact, you ought to be no Catholic at all, at least in terms of the Roman Catholic sense of being Catholic. You ought to be what everyone else has been for over 500 years, a Protestant. A Protestant. One who is protesting that the Gospel is diluted if it is taken away from the pure, unadulterated grace of God. And that is where we find ourselves. There's no difference. There's no change. There is absolutely no visible change or real change that I know of. And I've studied these documents in very, very critical detail. And I keep waiting, not for the separated brethren ourselves to come back into the fold of the Roman church, which is the only thing that they will see as ultimately acceptable, I keep waiting for the Roman church to acknowledge their error and not with regard to uh, some uh, issues of whether or not they were involved in sins of the past, sins of the Holocaust in the past. Uh, They are saying some of those things now and so many people are lauding such things and I say those things might be good to speak of sins of the past, but how about sins of the past and present, especially as it relates to the Gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that that I will ever see that's good in the Roman Catholic Church. And what we ought to do is we ought to pray for them, but we ought to see them as just 
like anyone else who's proclaiming a Christ. And it may be the actual Christ of the Word of God, but it's not the Christ who worked the work of God that satisfied in His atonement the satisfaction of God that only Christ could do. They might say we believe in the deity of Christ. They might say we believe in the Trinity. They might say uh, we are doing all of those things as other Orthodox Christians are doing. And that's what they say. And for the most part, they are correct in those things. But when it comes to the gospel of, of the grace of God and the salvation that's provided for us in Christ, they have another gospel. And we ought to reach out to them. We ought to continue to pray for them. You may have friends and relatives who are Roman Catholics. And there is a way to pray to, uh, for them and there is a way to talk to them. And it may not be in the preaching style that I've used tonight and it may not be in the way that I've described tonight in such bold terms, but all of us must understand that when we come to them in love, we cannot compromise as to what the Bible teaches that no one is justified by the works of the law. And when we come to them in that way, there's one thing we can pray for, and that is that God will use the message of His Word to convict the human heart and see hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of Roman Catholics come out of that damnable system into the grace of God. That's the only way it can happen. I have people who I've known from the Roman Catholic Church you have those. Uh, they may be your mother and father. They may be your sister or brother. They may be intimate friends with you. You may work with them. There are millions of Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholic Church is the largest landowner and the largest number of owned buildings in the entire world. They're very powerful, very strong. And it almost seems sometimes when we preach the Gospel to them or we're praying for them to come out of the Roman church uh, like a little boy who has his finger in the dike. But God is greater than that. And I praise God that some of you, even those of you who raised your hand, have come out of Roman Catholicism and have embraced the true grace of the Gospel of Christ. Why don't we pray for these others and then witness to them and speak to them. Read these booklets that I've outlined. Read and study these things. Understand where they're coming from. Meet them at that level in terms of what they may or may not understand. Teach them if they don't already know what their own church teaches. Sometimes people are Roman Catholics not because of choice, but because of family and tradition. Most of them probably don't understand even what their own church teaches. If you were to teach them what Rome teaches, they'd say, we don't, we don't believe that. We don't teach that. Just show them their own Catholic catechism. Show them in their own statements where that gospel has been diluted. And then pray. And pray fervently for them. Pray for us as a local congregation that we would have opportunity not only as individuals but collectively as well to reach out to those in the Romish condition so that we can preach the unadulterated grace of God. That's what they so desperately need. That's what everybody needs. The grace of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is at times seemingly a, a great tidal wave of power and influence, this Roman church.
seems so often that we are challenged because of the great weight of responsibility to know that You have entrusted to us this pure Gospel of Your grace. This free grace that cannot be, must not be diluted with any works of any kind. And yet, Lord, the task seems so vast. But then we simply think about where we have come from and what You have done by extending Your grace to us. And we're humbled and energized to speak with people who are so confused. Some of them convinced that because of the long-standing tradition of Rome, that they must be right. That it's been around for so long. How can it be wrong if it's been around for so long? Well, Satan's been around a long time too. And he continues to promote error. Sure, he's in the world promoting loose living and idolatry and debauchery, but he's far more active within Christendom attempting to dilute the Gospel, attempting to show someone like He did Eve of old that all you have to do is this. Is God really telling you the truth? Has God said, you surely shall not die? And He's a deceiver. And He's deceived so many. Disguising Himself as an angel of light, He masquerades as someone who's promoting your grace but He has diluted it. He's emasculated your grace. He's cut it away from its pure efficacy. And there are so many in His clutches. And I pray, Father, that You would take a message like this and burn it into the hearts of people who work with Catholics who may live with Catholics, who may know Catholics so very well, and some of them appear to be very righteous and very moral and very upstanding. And yet they are continually going to Mass and praying to Mary and doing penance, praying for the dead, all in a system of religion that takes people away from Christ, not to Him. It uses ceremony and ritual and all of the trappings of man trying to reach God. And we pray that You would motivate us and inform us and educate us as we have been educated tonight that ultimately the religion that attempts to reach God will fail. It is only a religion where God has indeed reached down to man in the person of Christ and His work. And we thank You that You opened up our blind eyes 
and You showed us this pure Gospel of Your grace. And I pray, Father, that You would take each of these testaments of truth, each of these trophies of grace, Your people who've been imputed, saved, justified by the righteousness of Christ and that You would so excite them that they would be able to show others around them that God has come to them. And Lord, I pray that You would allow these to whom we witness to really understand the true grace. And I pray that those who might truly have already come into that grace would leave Rome and that they would protest that the grace of God cannot be diluted in any way. I pray, Father, that You would do a work in our hearts so that we might preach and teach with boldness through love proclaiming this wonderful grace. Thank You for our time together. And as we continue to think about Rome, may You give us even more of Your sanctifying grace to preach and teach and to live holy lives. We thank You and praise You in Christ's blessed name and because of His work. Amen.